0: tuned in in, in. to Graham Hill's weekend variety wireless on radio live
1: two of the podcast if you've downloaded it thank you very much for listening also just a reminder the weekend variety wireless webpage we do our very best to make it easy and accessible for you Uh, you'll be able to find archives of various major features shipwreck tales outsiders secret museums of new zealand and such things as well as the freshest audio and a new kind of thing which is if you've missed it and you'll be able to click on any of the features that have been on throughout the weekend and either listen to them again or grab them for the first time i really don't mind secret museums of new zealand it's been fun Uh, maybe the most fun of the lesbian museum was brilliant the museum of regrets in cumberland street in dunedin and an- another secret museum in Dunedin, a reasonably fresh one, is full of weird skeletons and bones and crazy artwork and some really fascinating ephemera unconnected with bones and stuff.
2: And I've got a couple other yeah, interesting paranormal things, so I'm interested in ghosts, uh, poltergeists particularly. you hmm Are a subscriber that they exist? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. Um, that they exist. I think there's a lot of objective evidence that poltergeists exist. By that I mean that invisible agents sometimes move objects. And I have had an experience with this myself. And there is the artifact in the museum here of the clay head that was uh, damaged by poltergeist in Blocky Art School in Wellington, where I used to work.
1: Oh, wow. It's called the Museum of Natural Mystery, and it's by no means about poltergeisty things uh, in the main, but it is a fascinating place to visit. I did, and that is Bruce Mahalski, the curator. Hear from him later this hour, appropriately after Skeptical Thoughts skeptical thoughts a bit of a special this week we're going to have a look at uh, some you could call it recovering Jehovah's Witnesses Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do these video things that are really kind of they've got a real feel to them there's this sort of calm measured response as though they're all kind of reading from a a how-to book
3: Um, like, I'll I'll give you an example. Masturbation is the stroking or rubbing of the genital organs, commonly resulting in an orgasm. So, does a person have to use their hands to masturbate? These and other more important questions will be answered during Sceptical
1: Thoughts with Mark Honeychurch, Church, which is coming up next. Ah, weekend, variety, wireless. Oh, nice, we've got the message thing here. Uh, if John, we're talking about Jacinda on Colbert and all those sort of things. Hi, John Key's, and I said, your well, John Key did it as well. John Key's appearance on Dave Letterman cost $10,000, I think, plus was totally cringe-worthy showing. What's this supposed to be? New Zealand is kind of cringeworthy. Um, at least Jacinda came across as witty. Yes, she did. That's from, I won't read out your cell phone number, uh, but if you write another one like that, I will. Just kidding. Uh, Why would you disrespect Nigel Yeldon for his pronunciation of Argentinian, Argentina rugby players' names? I get pissed off when the Aussie commentators get dot, 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 dot. I just think he's over-egging it. It's, it's, it's got a touch of the show offies. Shall I play it to you again? I don't Pablo mind. Repla- he's a great commentator. He's really good, but you can tell he's really having a go here.
2: Pablo Matera replaces Tomás Lazana on the side of the scrum, while Gonzalo Petrano starts at halfback, meaning no Martin Landajo this week. Romero Machano's injury-enforced absence sees Matas Moroni and Harano Modella Fuente push out to right <laughs> wing and centre,
1: respectively, it- with Bautista Escura slotting in at second five. All Buenos right. Aires, thanks to me, New Zealand. Nigel Yolden. Yeah, I said Buenos Aires, which is nice. That's one thing that the pronunciation gets everyone's... W- so many people are way out. Um, Buenos Aires. You hear that a lot, don't you? Buenos. I went to Buenos Aires. All right. Mark Honeychurch, Skeptical Thoughts Time. It's raining. Bullshit. Hallelujah. Oh, it was an amazing performance of uh, spanish sa- sounding names. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Marco? honey. Okay, Church tio, welcome. Okie okay. dokie. Um, oh, goodness me, grab your notes. Here they are. Now, you went to the OTO um, for this ceremony. It's some sort of Gnostic, weird, satanic, oh, I don't know what it is. You've been back. Tell us who they are and what you went back for.
0: Yeah so this was something um we talked about last December um I went to a mass then and it's uh it's a group that um it wasn't started by but it was taken over fairly early on by Alistair Crowley who's a well-known occultist and um it's all about kind of the occult the esoteric kind of black magic dark stuff and it's fascinating to me that people can believe this um so i tried to go three months ago it looks like they're trying to run quarterly events in wellington at the moment i tried to go to the winter solstice in june unfortunately they changed the venue at the last minute so i i missed that one and then i spotted the other day they had another service on last weekend so um I nudged my friend Tim and I said, ''Hey, can you get us on the guest list for this one so we can turn up?'' He sorted it all out and we turned up for, I think it was about six o'clock last Saturday evening, and um, we were told basically we were the only two people there.
1: Oh, no, I'm feeling sorry for them.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, sorry for them. It was just cringeworthy for us. You know, we're not there because we, we really believe this. We're there because it's interesting to us, fascinating to see.
1: So oh, why not? Um, At least they were welcoming.
0: They were. No, it was absolutely brilliant. So there were three of them running it. So we had a deacon, a priest, and a priestess. And the deacon came outside and welcomed us beforehand. She recognized us from last time. Um, And she was really nice, explained it was just the two of us. Uh, Went through again a little bit about what we were supposed to be doing. And we walked into the service. And it it got a lot less embarrassing as soon as we walked in. Tim and I had to sit on opposite sides facing each other so that it was symmetric. Are you
1: naked Um, when you're doing this? (laughs)
0: <laughs> we're, we're not naked. A friend had actually asked me uh, if I'd be up for getting naked and if it's okay for the congregation to get naked. Yeah. I don't know if it is, um, but I'm sure you remember from last time that the priestess gets naked about halfway through. It was interesting this time just how much more I could focus on. The first time I think everything was so new, everything was so weird that it, it was all coming at me in a flash, and I, I don't think I actually remembered a huge amount, but I oh. had more time to focus this time, more time time to look at what was going on, maybe try and figure out some of the symbolism of, uh, of the things we were seeing. So, um, yeah, one, one of the things that was interesting um, was that because it was just the two of us it was just me and Tim who were having to chant along and and speak along to these things and um i think we did a pretty good job given that this was only our second time and i think we've got some audio with, Yeah, i think it's the the priest singing and then the deacon speaks and then Tim and i join in
1: okay here we are here's uh, the ceremony the secret of the sun and that most holy mystery of which the vehicle am I
3: appear most awful and most mild As it is
1: lawful in thy child For of the Father and the Son The Holy Spirit, Spirit is, is the, the norm, norm. Male, Male, female, quintessential, quintessential one, one. Man being veiled in woman form, glory and worship in the highest. All right. What are you quoting from there? Where do they get their scripture?
0: Um, so this, as far as I understand, is all written by Crowley. Um, and He kind of pulled from lots of tradition... Uh, Traditional ancient tradition, so it, it, it was bits from all over the place Egyptian, far eastern um, I, I think it 's partially modeled on a Catholic mass as well, and it 's kind of it 's a mix of languages, but it was it was really fascinating to be able to go through it again and and one thing that we had a real comedy moment, I think we 've got the audio of this in a minute, but there 's a point at which they 're about to reveal the priestess who has been behind curtains on an altar. The curtains need to be opened to reveal her as naked. Mm. And the, the veil of the, the curtains are, are pierced by the lance of the priest. And I swear this is all just such...
1: Yeah, so that's on a imagery. euphemism for something. <laughs> is it you're actually saying what really happened?
0: Yep. So we've got a pair of curtains being parted by a rod. Uh, unfortunately, the curtains got stuck, and the rod wasn't opening them up. Um, so the poor guy had to keep kind of trying to use the rod and tug at the bottom of the curtains to try and get it open. And eventually, it happened. But if we listen to this clip, yeah. I think you can hear the clanging of the um, the curtain rings and the banging of the rod as he tries to get it open.
1: Okay. Here we go. <laughs> No law beyond
0: do what thou wilt. Yo yo yo
1: yo yo well, yeah, it's Well, it's either that or watch MasterChef or the Block, isn't it? So, so that's, <laughs> it sounds like fun. So what was happening there? Did you finally, did the curtains open and she was naked there?
0: Yep, so she was naked. It was a different woman to last time. Um, she bought out the communion, which, as we talked about before, it's like a wafer or biscuit that's um, got sperm inside it. And, um, and then a glass of wine afterwards. So Who's? these came out, they were blessed... Uh, and i noticed this time which i didn't notice last time that they kept mentioning in the word sperm so there were phrases like glory to thee beyond all term thy spring of sperm thy seed and germ and tuto sd to sperma mu," which apparently translates as this is my seed and there were several mentions of seed as well um and we talked last time about how the biscuit is dry and Ish. I think also, especially imagining what's inside it, it's kind of hard to swallow. Yeah. So this time... Who's, I
1: was... no, hang on, Mark. You, do you want to... Were you interested in the, whose sperm it was? <laughs>
0: Uh, So we don't know. It's normally either sperm or it's menstrual blood. Um, I suspect it's the sperm of the priest, because I think the priest uh, in Wellington generally runs things. So I imagine it's his sperm. Um, But, yeah, the biscuit this time, I was prepared for it. So I spent about 30 seconds before I went up for communion just filling my mouth with saliva. So that by the time I got to popping the biscuit in, I was able to make it moist pretty quickly, swallowed it within maybe 10, 12 seconds, which Mm -hmm. wasn't too embarrassing necked it back with a glass of wine mm. turned around said my piece. there is no part of me that is not of the gods um and then went and sat back down and this time the biscuit was a little bit fruity which was nice i'm not mm. sure what they added but um Frick. i kind of like the taste
1: yeah okay well look good for you you know your way around now these sort of ceremonies this is um fascinating stuff what do they believe in what do they think is going to happen
0: um, I don't think they've got any kind of end-of-the-world scenario or anything like that. They just believe in occult forces. So um, things like numerology and spirits and all that kind of thing, it's it's all very mystical and weird and a lot of it is very secretive. They have kind of uh, secret paths that you can follow where you have a one-on-one with a mentor that you're given and you, you learn and you write essays and you kind of move up through the ranks as you do that. But it's, it's hard to find out too much i think they have a few services that are public but after that everything's done in private
1: oh okay so the one you got you got the 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 special one
0: well, this one's just, this one's the public service. I oh. mean, it, it sounds pretty crazy, you know, candles and Egyptian hieroglyphs and naked priest and sperm and cracker, but yeah. this is the public service. This is the the service that's supposed to make it accessible for the public.
1: Yeah, well, as we found out, um, they aren't the only priests to get naked uh, And uh, as far as uh, religious organisations go, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not harming anyone, are they, or is it just, I don't, I don't
3: know.
0: Um, as far as OTO are concerned, no. They they seem like a, a really good group of people, wow. um, friendly, kind. Um, they seem to be accepting of everybody. They've got no issues with homosexuality or anything like that. So, no, they seem like a really good group, just maybe a little bit confused about what is reality.
1: Okay. Maybe they just like the gear and it makes them feel kind of like special and spooky.
0: It does look cool. Yeah, no, the the robes and the you know the candles in the darkness and all that kind of thing. It, it is a really cool look. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind donning a robe myself at some point. But again, I don't know if the congregation allowed to be naked. I don't know if we could turn up mm. wearing a robe. Maybe oh, I'll right, try right, it.
1: Right, right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh well, well done. Thanks for going and doing that. I'm actually slightly envious. Uh, now, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, let's talk about them, and they do quite special videos, don't they? Um and you've also met with some ex Jehovah's witnesses and it's oh, I've spoken with a few as well. It's something that goes a little bit under the radar, doesn't it? Uh but I think it's worth listening to these people what they've been through.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about it going under the radar. I mean for years as far as I was concerned. Jehovah's Witnesses were just another religious group. They were just a branch of Christianity, who have a slightly different idea. That you know, they go out and they're proactive. They knock on your door. But in the last few years, looking into them, the more I look, the more I realise that they really do fit the bill of being a cult. Um, it's it's horrible to think that people can be in a cult group that they because you know once you're in, you tend to get stuck. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they're in most countries around the world. They're um, they're doing fairly well for themselves, even though as far as I understand, numbers are dropping thankfully, but it's horrible to think that so many people would be stuck in a community like this, and as, as you say, yesterday I went out and um, met maybe about nine or ten ex-Jehovah's Witnesses in a pub, and they were a really friendly group. Um, I think this was the first physical meeting they've ever done, um, but they do, they do have an online group. I think it's a Facebook group that they have where they converse a lot, and so it was great to see them just talking with each other, how friendly they are with each other, I guess there's a real camaraderie about having left this cult, um, and they just being able to sit there and listen to them was absolutely fascinating. Um, they talked about what it's like being in the group. They, they talked about leaving and the different types of leaving. I think we've talked before about disfellowship, about um, mm. how you can be pushed out the church, and at that point you're shunned. Um, Basically, everybody is told that they can't talk with you. But it turns out that even if you leave of your own accord, which is called disassociation, um, or if you just stop going to meetings quietly and slowly, which is known as fading, apparently you can still be shunned. You, You can still it can be announced in a service that you have left the church and at that point that's a sign to everybody that that's letting everybody know that they should have no further contact with you.
1: Yeah, and there's a very strong emphasis on the power of the uh the church organization itself, the elders and things like that. Um let, should we play a little bit of one of their videos? We've, what would you like? homosexuals masturbation or female masturbation?
0: Um, I, I think it, whichever one first, I guess, and I'll just, I'll talk about it. Okay. After here we played. go.
3: Masturbation is the stroking or rubbing of the genital organs, commonly resulting in an orgasm. So does a person have to use their hands to masturbate? For example, say a brother wears an undergarment that's so tight. It rubs his penis as he moves around. He gets aroused and even ejaculates. Is he masturbating? Yes, he is. Because he's deliberately stimulating his genitals, even though he's not using his hands. Does there have to be an orgasm for it to be considered masturbation? Suppose a brother starts rubbing his genitals against a pillow. He gets an erection but stops before having an orgasm. Is he masturbating? Yes, again, because he's deliberately stimulating himself.
1: All right. Um, they, They will have a certain pace and style, don't they?
0: It's very interesting just how seriously they pass this on. But this came up in conversation with the ex-Jehovah's witnesses. We were talking about sex and and the kind of freedoms you have or don't have within the church. We talked about how masturbation is not allowed, which was quite surprising to me. But apparently they're quite forceful about this. Um, and they said, "Oh yeah, there's this thing called Pillowgate, which is this video. It's a video that was made for one of the Bethel um, places, so that they have a bunch of regional head- quarters which are each of them is called Bethel and for one of them it seems like the elders were worried that maybe there was a lot of sexual stuff going on that that wasn't okay as far as Jehovah was concerned and so they made this video to try and help people um, know what was okay and what wasn't okay but as they described it it just sounded absolutely ridiculous and what we've just heard I mean you know the idea of tight fitting clothing rubbing on you being masturbation it's just silly and I asked the guys um, about masturbation it was like but of course you masturbated didn't you and they said yeah of course we did we just felt guilty about it afterwards Uh, so you know perfectly natural, it's perfectly normal, horrible that a church thinks that it's their place to be telling people that they shouldn't be doing it. And I think we've got a, a second audio clip about homosexuality as well.
3: Yeah, let's have a, a little listen to that and some of their ideas on it. Here we go. The first way you can do this is by avoiding tight-fitting clothes that can identify you with homosexuality. What kind of clothes are we talking about? Some outfits are designed to feminize a man's appearance, as homosexuals try to do, especially displaying the buttocks and genitals. Why? Because it makes it harder to tell the difference between a homosexual and a heterosexual man, making homosexuals blend in. I'm not getting that. It's not beat to the Hero Parade. Anyway, here we go. So these clothes contribute to changing people's opinion of homosexuality because they come to see it as normal and acceptable. We know that you never intentionally promote that practice. But the question is, how would Jehovah view a man that serves him while dressed in a way that identifies him with homosexuality? Yeah, well, he's actually on the winning end of a
1: theological argument there, is he not, Mark?
0: I'm not sure it's it's an interesting argument um I I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like that before to be quite honest um but yeah talking to these people was absolutely amazing um they are such brave people one person even had been through sexual abuse in the church and um such a sad story but they're all so strong and uh having talked with them the message from them seems to be that there's a good life to be had outside the church, that they're doing better now they've left than they were doing beforehand. Um, It's hard to leave. But it's worth doing, basically, if you're having doubts, if if you're thinking that maybe there's hypocrisy with the elders, um, if you're realizing that the church isn't all it's cracked up to be. There is a life outside. Just search for XJWs online and there are people out there that will help you. And I, I did a quick bit of reading to try and find out what recommendations there were, and it seems to be... To quietly fade away is a good way to leave the church. Yep. And if you can build up a social circle before you go, if you can find some people outside of the church before you leave, it means you're not abandoned. You're not just left all alone when it comes to crunch time.
1: Yeah. Hey, good stuff, Mark Honeychurch. Uh, appreciate it. Sceptical thoughts this week. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Another in the series, Secret Museums of New Zealand, and in Dunedin, not that far away from the renowned Museum of Regrets in Cumberland Street, is a Museum of Natural Mystery. And it's full of fascinating bones and other things as well, and art done with bones. It's the work of Bruce Mahalski there's a book about it too called Seeds of Life. We have said curator here, g'day Bruce. Hello, how are you? Good. It's mainly to do with bones. The first thing to ask is the collection. Is it an inherited collection from other people, or is it your work over life? Um, It's a bit of both. I guess my own collecting um,
2: ambitions came from my parents and their friends. It just seemed like what normal people did. You know, if you didn't have a collection, really, you weren't a human being. So uh, I just started collecting, and when my parents died recently, I, I sort of folded their collections in. And recently my son went overseas,
1: so I grabbed some of his collections as well. OK. It's a fascinating-looking thing. and something I would like to mention for the listeners. It's, I suppose you would say, rigorously curated. The descriptions and the displays are as good as anything you'd see in any museum. So that's, that's, yeah. that's a reflection of, I suppose the love and rigour and maybe a background in zoology? Uh, years, years and years at university. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what were you studying at university?
2: Uh, I did a whole lot of things. I mean, when I went to university, it was still free, thank God. And uh, I started off doing a, uh, a biology degree, and now I did psychology, um, and then I got into philosophy. So, yeah, I, I, I mucked around quite a bit. I, I, part of it too was I worked at university media, uh, and it was like a job. And, and to do the job you had to keep doing a couple of papers so i was one of those people that was a student for a long time yeah. this is your house your home yes yes and it's the museum i, I bought this house specifically to do this project so i, I was living in wellington um, uh, where I lived for many years basically teaching art, and then uh, I, I sort of you know I got this ambition to put everything together because previously my collection was sort of scattered between my house and my studio and various other places and so I suggested to my partner that we we move back to Dunedin so we 're both from Dunedin and and do this do this museum thing and she said you 're mad and uh, <laughs> and uh, so unfortunately we had to break up. Now, uh, for me to, me to do this, this uh, sort of art
1: kamikaze project, um, so here I am. Okay, what you see when you come in, really predominantly bones, 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 skulls, skulls, skulls. And you've got some remarkable examples that you wouldn't see out the back in most places. Southern giraffe, you've got turtles and just an incredible array of uh, exotic things. Hippo. Oh, yeah, yeah. the hippo out there. Yeah, yeah. Can we go and have a look at the hippo yeah, and talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Yeah. No, I'm in love with my hippo. Yeah, it's fabulous. The hippo skull sits upon an oval wooden table a dining table with four chairs and it really does dominate the affair it's much much bigger than i would have thought that's amazing
2: yeah Yeah. no it's actually this is a temporary display i'm going to build a a more this is like i only got this recently it's been my lifetime's ambition to acquire one um, reason being is that the hippo skull is the biggest skull that still looks like the animal. Whale skulls don't look like whales. No. Elephant skulls don't really look like elephants. With well, the tusks, and they sort of do, but you can't muck around with elephant tusks these days. So I also thought if I'm going to have a skull museum, i got to have a hippo skull, or people are just going to laugh at me.
1: It's an impressive thing. And you're right, it does still look like the animal. You see elephant skulls, and I've always thought, Hang on, where's the rest of it? Yeah. The other thing with, eleph- uh,
2: with, with with hippos is that everybody that comes in here talks about how violent they are. It's like hippos have got this bad rep. Whereas I'm always first to say, well, oh, hang on a minute, You know, how many people are humans killing in Africa every year versus hippos? I mean, I've actually tried to do the numbers on this, but nobody's quite sure of the, the death count of humans. Whereas hippos is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, bit, a bit hazy on that as well. Mm. I think I've, I've, I've heard as many as... It's 5,000 a year in some places, whereas other people put it down to, like, 500. Mm. So nobody's quite sure how many people hippos kill, uh, but I would think it's a fraction of the number that that human beings kill each other, I mean.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could just take into account the Congolese War and I oh, think yeah. you're up to the millions anyway. Hi-
2: hippos just don't like people coming into their water
1: systems. Yeah, yeah. Oh, People like rivers, hippos like rivers, there yeah. you go. Yeah, stay away from their rivers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a prized yeah. exhibit. Show me some others. I've had a good look around, but I don't know what fascinates you. Okay, well, it's lots of really small things.
2: I mean, often it's the, the, the smaller things that I mm. get off on. So there's this thing over here. This is a, uh, a container full of Probably several hundred monarch butterflies that are dead, unfortunately. Mm. And I acquired these uh, when a lady called Judy Edgerton was run over um, about this time last year. And she had dedicated her life to, to breeding butterflies, monarch butterflies in her garden. And then her whole inside of her house was covered in aluminium foil. I don't know if that was for the butterfly's benefit or for some other benefits. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but you can see on the wings of a lot of these butterflies have got little numbers. Yeah. So she was doing a sort of tag and release thing as well. So when she died, um, uh, uh, my friend John was her, her nephew and, and he was clearing out the house and I went round there and they were throwing away pretty much a clean sack full of these, these dead butterflies. So I, I grabbed some of these to commemorate Judy's life. She was an interesting person. She was also good friends with Nyri, the original owner of this house. Ah. They went to university together. Uh, So I thought it was a good way to sort of, you know, I'm always trying to sort of think about what Nairi would think, you know, because she lived here for a long time. She was a history teacher down the road. Mm. trying to think, would Nairi approve of of what I'm doing? And I'm always thinking, yeah, what would my parents think and what would my son think of what I'm doing with their collections? Because I tend to take over people's collections and then I sort of turn them
1: into into my artwork, Mm. which is the whole thing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your artwork because you'll be able to see pictures of it, but it's made of bones and... The first thing I suppose that a lot of people would think is the art and installation done many, many years ago on that Czech church out of bones as well. Yeah, yeah, everybody always references that and says, have I been there? And the answer is no. No,
2: I I have seen pictures of it, but I've never been there. It's not one of my inspirations. My inspiration is actually mainly Andy Goldsworthy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's heard of of him. I think probably some people have. He's a Scottish artist who does installations uh, using natural materials, often in nature, but sometimes in galleries. And I got really inspired by just using found objects to create signposts pointing at the the natural environment other other people say giga you know geiger oh, you know yeah, geiger yeah. Giga, you know he used to call himself giga so i'm going with giga uh but giga yeah i love him but he's not he's not a big influence uh, yeah. pacific and african art is another huge influence
1: and as far as the collecting goes did you get an early bug somehow and take it from there was there an experience or something that your family was involved in that You know, you start with a a mummified cat found under the house or something?
2: Uh, No, my parents both had their own collections and we used to travel a lot, go overseas a lot and my parents were picking things up. And so I started picking things up and we lived in Sweden for a bit and I started started a herbarium of, of Swedish sort of flowers um and in those days you could get anything through customs really particularly if your parents were scientists you know, scientists didn't get their bags looked at too much and then when we lived in england i started collecting and skinning english land mammals so building up a collection of them <laughs> so i don't know it's something i always did mm. yeah
1: is there a process to make the bones to have the bones in a, a form or a or a thing some sort of state before you use them or it's just dry it out and off you yeah. go. There's a lot of work that goes into cleaning the bones.
2: So there's lots of ways you can clean bones. The internet is full of people who are collecting bones and giving advice on how to clean them. Uh, but the main method I use is to find animals that uh, are already pretty much skeletonised, hopefully, uh, in places like Central Otago where it's very arid or on beaches. And then I just pick up those bones and I boil them. If the animal's still got flesh on it and it's sort of not too fleshy, I'll boil it up for quite a while to get the, the remaining flesh to come off. Or I might leave it somewhere on the, on the beach or, or, you know, in Central Otago, underneath some rocks, and then come back the next trip okay. and grab it then. You, you literally squirrel them away. Yeah, yeah I've, got, I've got caches everywhere. Right. So I, I sort of, like, make little notations on my phone and, and, and you know, put uh, little markers and... Uh, um, you know,
1: little things to remind me where they are. Sometimes. So people going through central might see some sort of um, schist can. Yeah. And well, exactly. Yeah, we won't tell anyone where it is.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few of them, but I don't, I don't like picking up whole dead animals and carrying them around because, right. uh, also like there's there's issues, you know, in New Zealand with bone collecting with with lots of native animals here, and really Department of Conservation does not want you to pick up any native animal at all. You know, just walk away. Um, personally I find that, you know, a little bit difficult. I'm quite happy to walk away from a, a whole dead, you know, animal. But if I see a bone on a beach, I'm gonna pick it up probably, if it's useful to me.
1: Like any curious child would want to do, and should. Well, I don't know about should, but,
2: you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very, um, uh, complex ethical issue. Because right. we don't want to get in a situation of like, become like Lord Rothschild and, and the or and that. Oh. So I understand, you know, the good reason for not not creating a market for for native
1: animals. Well, what you're talking about there is that infamous time when Walter Buller um, was the prime collector of very rare New Zealand native birds, and he would shoot them for their skins and sell them to collectors overseas. There's a big difference between... Uh, collecting something which is dead and shooting the damn thing for a Rothschild overseas. Not, not legally, though. Not according to the law at the moment. Oh, Jesus. Yes. OK. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's go in the other room. So it's not all bones. I want to say it's not yeah. all bones. Yeah, you, there's some lovely... I suppose the word is ephemera as well. Sorry, I finished my Lionel Terry thing here. So. Ah, Lionel Terry, the famous man who... Um, well, infamous. I think the, uh... The word was it xenophobe or just plain out anti-asian racist I, at the time yeah i've called him a xenophobe here yeah yeah okay um he made a significant Path on foot uh, to Wellington, wasn't it, and to, to Tom, shoot he, a Chinaman. He walked 900 miles, and so it was a, it was a, it wasn't a direct route. Um,
2: but I don't think he, he, he walked that whole distance thinking I'm going to kill a Chinaman. But when he had a frustrating meeting with uh, with Parliament at the time, and he couldn't persuade them to to end Asian immigration. He, he went down to Henning Street in Wellington in 1905 and shot an elderly Chinese man as a political stunt, really, to, to promote his pamphlet, The Shadow, where he, he basically, you know, uh, put forward the idea that Europeans should, should never have anything to do with, with any, anybody of any other race at all. Mm. And then he was very cross when he wasn't executed. Um, he really wanted to be a sort of martyr, you know, like a white, a white martyr. And so he spent all his life in mental institutions. So what I've got in the museum is one of his paintings uh, he used to be quite a prolific artist,
1: and his his paintings are actually rather good. Not bad at all. Well, that's a stunning aside. Yes. And it's right beside a wall of look like um, sheep skulls, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. That's well, it's impressive. But one thing with with bones, a lot of people do recoil because it simply reminds them of death. Yes. So
2: the main the main thing I get is your work is beautiful but macabre because people sort of have the death association with bones whereas i don't see that i see the bones as like enduring memories of lives lived Uh, you just gotta flip your thinking on this and and think about my my analogy which is you know often quoted by myself so forgive me if you've heard it before that if you're walking around another planet and you saw a bone you wouldn't be sad you'd be very happy that something else you know was alive um, with with you so it gives us a feeling of it gives me a feeling like I'm not I'm not in this alone.
1: Just on that I have a friend who's would like to and I think it's a brilliant idea after they die use their bones to make a candelabra and to be remembered by it because you've got just the right you could make a nice menorah with the bones in the your front arm bit right to the femur it'd be a lovely candelabra and why not? Yeah, well I think what's actually happening at the moment, we haven't really got time to
2: discuss this at length but there's a bit of a revisionist thought going on at the moment I think, where what's happening is a lot of institutions are starting to remove um, human bone material from public display Uh, and so for instance Māori sometimes would make objects, beautiful objects out out of human bone and these are now being taken off display. I find that slightly, slightly disappointing because I think, you know, it's, it's a complex subject, but humans and animals, we're all in this together, as far as like, there's no, there's no separation for me. And if you're prepared to use animal bones in art, I, I don't see why we should have a sort of taboo around human bone material. And if people want to gift their bones, like what you're talking about, for a particular purpose, why shouldn't they be able to do that? Yeah. So, for instance, I'd be quite happy, and I think my father would have been quite happy for me to have his skull. On display I'd be quite happy for my son to have my skull on display. It's all about getting permission though, I think and, yeah. and doing it sensitively. So I don't want to think the whole museum is just about skulls. No. There's, there's other things as well. Um, so there's the, the Pacific and African art um, here but in this case I've got a lot of very strange ephemera that have come, have come down through the family including my plate here reputed to have belonged to the last man in England hung for sheep stealing which came from a great aunt's antique shop in Dorchester. I've also got my bit of wood from the bowsprit of of the Victory, oh. uh, Nelson's flagship at Trafalgar. What do I hang on?
1: I've been on the Victory, yeah. and I went up, I went up the front, and I saw there's a piece missing. So here it is.
2: No, no, this is, this is a, they replaced the bowsprit in the oh. 1920s, and when they were doing that, they, they this is actually a serviette serviette They they carved some commemorative pieces from it and sold them to help defray the expenses. Ah. Uh. Now I've got a, a, a photocopy here, original photocopy of First Division Lotto ticket that won, and a photo of the winner, uh, who was an associate of mine. You've redacted the eyes. Yes. In a sort of like a reverca, a reverse burka. Yeah, yeah, he was a little bit sensitive about being being identified.
1: God, it looks like David Kilgour. It's not, <laughs> is it? No, no, it's not. Um, but speaking of which, you've got an album from one of New Zealand's finest creative musical minds, yes. Peter Gutteridge, and it's signed. Yes, the reason I've got that album there is
2: because I was a, I was a friend of Peter's, and I'm actually on that record uh, as a track we did where we were just mucking around. And as Peter was wanting to, do, he sort of pushed the record button without me knowing it. So I found out later this track was on this record. I was a little bit a little bit annoyed about it, but these these things happen. Uh, and so shortly before Peter died, I, I he was. Um, yeah, I got him to sign the record. Uh, I had to buy my own bloody copy, you know, which is was a bit, bit annoying, bit yeah. annoying. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. track are you on? Uh, it's a track called Bomb. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what else have I got? I've got a, I've got a, a bayonet here, it's this miniature bayonet that was gifted to my grandfather who worked for the Belgian Armoury uh, before World War II, mm. and it's got it's a remarkable work on the blade there. Uh, I've got a £5 pound note that was forged in a German concentration camp by the Jewish prisoners as part of Operation Bernhardt. Uh, there's a film about it, The Counterfeiters. I've got a first day cover signed by George Orbell, the man
1: who discovered the Takahay, ah. rediscovered the Hay. That's a pretty rich and varied display cabinet in a small area. There's a lot. There. Yeah. And there's one thing I must ask you about. What on earth is the scale model of a Mark IV Zephyr Zodiac? Um, it looks rather nephew-artish, but <laughs> what the hell is it? Uh, this is when I did an exhibition
2: uh, about cargo cults. So cargo cults uh, um, a bit hard to explain in a few words, but in the Pacific, when the first Europeans turned up with their advanced technologies, particularly around World War II in places like Papua New Guinea, a lot of the natives were in awe and really couldn't understand how you could get something like a helicopter or a refrigerator. So they started inventing all these sort of magical explanations and started building like warehouses uh, for for their ancestors to uh, somehow commune with the gods to get the secret of the cargo. Uh, and if they built the airstrips and the, the warehouses and they put on the right uniforms and started drilling like American soldiers, etc., these goods would come. So cargo cults sprang up all over the Pacific. So I imagined that a cargo cult started in New Zealand and the devotees were trying to win lotto using magic. So this model of a, of a, of a Mark IV Zephyr is made using bus tickets. So I was at a point in my life when I was too poor to afford a car and I was using the buses a lot. So I thought, well, bus tickets have got the essence of travel. So I thought if I, if I accumulate enough bus tickets and make them into a car, perhaps I'll magically, you know, by sympathetic magic, a car will appear. So it's, yeah, bus ticket a mache. Yeah, yeah, it's entirely made out of bus tickets Far and, and glue. And I've got my paranormal stuff as well. So mm-hmm. over here we've got a photo uh, taken of a, of a ghost uh, by a friend of mine. Uh, oh. here, here it is. And I've got a couple other yeah, interesting paranormal things. So I'm interested in ghosts, uh, poltergeists particularly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Are you a subscriber th- that they exist? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt. Um, that they exist. It may it may just be in our minds, but that doesn't make it any less interesting. No. I think there's a lot of objective evidence that poltergeists exist, and by, by that I mean that invisible agents sometimes move objects. And I have had an experience with this myself, and there is the artifact in the museum here of oh. the clay head that was uh, damaged. By a poltergeist in Vlocky Art School in Wellington, where I used to work. Oh! So in this case, the invisible. That area. is a that is a frightening uh, visage. It's a it's a horned devil made of clay. Yep. Um, and so it was a head that I, a child had started making in my art class and then they hadn't turned up for the last lesson so I turned it into a devil face because I knew they weren't coming back and it was just a me mucking around mm. and then when I went out of the room at the end of the class I was tidying up, the children had left and I went out of the classroom for a minute and I came back and something had, had pushed my cup here into the, the mouth of the, of the thing that's marked here is the cup being pushed in mm. to, to damage the face and the night before uh and another invisible agent in fact the, the person had been in the room when it happened had put a um a cup down on a wet artwork uh, and then moved it to another position so effectively damaged the artwork and then said look haha you know so they hadn't left the cup on it mm. so in this case the poltergeist whatever it was hadn't left the cup in the mouth it had put it back down in another position mm. so it's been pushed down with some force right. interesting thing really? uh what i got my Got my Bush chasing bin Laden here. So, this is uh-huh. uh, after 9 11 uh, in, uh, in a, a, the, the uh, Arabic nations. Um, obviously, Osama was seen as a bit of a hero. And so, this is sort of a, a, a toy almost sort of venerating Osama. And it's got so Bush chasing him. Uh, but Bush never catches him because there's a magnet in the Bush character that repels the Osama <laughs> character.
1: <laughs> That's the hell of a treatise <laughs> in a toy. Yeah,
2: I got my can of whale meat here from, from Korea. Uh huh. I got my armadillo uh, handbag. Right, right.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a, a fascinating co- collection, but in some way, there is some. Um, it, it does seem connected. Yes. yes, I don't know how, but it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's visually stunning as well. Not just all, all the bones, but birds. Oh, good God, you've got an alligator, a crocodile. Yeah, huge. That's a beautiful crocodile skull, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So that's a saltwater crocodile. So that's the that's the, the biggest member of the crocodile family, and that's a really nice one. Mm. And I've got a mosasaur skull. There. Yeah, it's quite pleased to get that. And a megalodon tooth. Yep, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's not quite The Mosasaur skull. That's, that's that's a rare a rare yeah. thing. Got some moa bones, of course. Yep, uh, I love I love moa. Mm. Um, I also do a bit of street art, and uh, uh, one of my favourite things is to paint moa. Mm. I think that should be on everything.
1: Well, um. It's a beautiful museum and uh, gorgeously curated, so good for you, and go, go visit it once. What sort of visitor numbers do you get, Bruce? Well,
2: it's still very early days, so the museum only opened in March so I'm still trying to sort of, um, you know, become visible. So at the moment I'm getting about... For those listening in the future, March 2018? Yes, so are getting about 20 people in a weekend. So it's only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday yeah. from 10 to 5. Uh, it's in Royal Terrace in Dunedin, sort of near Olverston. No, if you look online, you'll find it. Dunedin Museum you put in. So that's my kind of cunning attempt for the for the algorithms. So put Dunedin Museum. So I, I, get, I get people ringing me up saying, you're a target museum. So sorry, a target museum, but I don't think I'm a threat.
1: <laughs> Good for you. Bruce Mahalski. thanks very much. It's a visual stunner, and go there at once if you can. 61 Royal Terrace. Yes, and if you
2: see the book lying around, so uh, the book, sorry to promote it, was Seeds of Life by myself and Craig Hilton. It's about sort of the really the ethics. of of collecting and and making art, but also what is human human beings' place in the natural world. So it's not really so much an art book as a sort of philosophical manifesto, but it's filled with pictures um, of the sort of art that I make, and it's available in most good good bookshops around the country, or you can get them uh, through me, um, so the museum website. Okay, Bruce, thanks very
1: much and good luck. My pleasure. Yeah, do go see that museum, uh, the Museum of Natural Mystery, Gosh, it's beautifully created. It's not a junk shop looking thing. Um, Royal Terrace, you'll spot it uh, in Dunedin. Okay, Uh, coming up later this evening, we will be having the first instalment of something we're calling Jesus Make It Stop. That's a line from a famous Siegfried Sassoon poem called The Attack. As we count down to the end, the last death throes of World War I with Glenn Harper, military historian, I would proffer New Zealand's best. We'll be doing it right till Sunday, because it falls on a Sunday, November the 11th.